copy of God's Word to John chapter 16. I was thinking as we were singing that hymn, Jesus uh, indeed did pay it all. Um, but there's another question that follows. Uh, what did he purchase? Uh, and that has huge implications and we're wading into those as we've been going through the Gospel of John. And uh, I have to admit to you as we have been approaching chapter 16 and ultimately 17 uh, in what Jesus is communicating really hours before he was going to be going to the cross. Um, there's a certain uh, insecurity uh, in some ways or in uh, an unnerving insecurity as we wade into these things because in some ways they're so profound uh, that you feel sure that you will not do justice uh, to the doctrines. And then in the other, on the other hand, uh, when we're reading about the Holy Spirit, uh, you're, you're, real, you're realizing in the same moment that you are utterly dependent upon Him uh, in the speaking of that truth. And so there's uh, kind of a tension that that creates in me. There's a part of me that wants to be uh, absolutely uh, theologically and doctrinally correct uh, but then there's another part of me that recognizes if I attempt to do that in the power of my own strength and my own flesh, I will fail miserably and therefore dishonor the very one whom I'm preaching about today, which is uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus has already kind of introduced the person and minister of the Holy Spirit uh, all the way back in chapter 14. And we come through that in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, and also verse 26 and then also in 15, chapter 20, or chapter 15, verse 26. And so when we get to chapter 16, we're not hearing uh, for the first time anything about the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already introduced the subject of the person of the Holy Spirit. And so when we get into this uh, text, uh, he unfolds even more. And as I was studying this this week, um, you may have thought of this before, but I, I never did. But I've been really humbled and because I was asking myself, what is, the, what is the eschatological role of the Holy Spirit? In other words, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in eternity? I, I get what it is here. It's massive. I mean, it's, he's involved in our sanctification. He's involved in our instruction. He's involved in our, uh, in, our, in our life, even in our understanding of the scriptures themselves. He's intimately involved with our lives. He is God dwelling within us. But when we reach that point of sanctification where we then bear the image of Christ and, and we ultimately receive our resurrected bodies and we are forever with the Lord, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit then? Because all those things that he seems to have been ministering to us here will have been fulfilled there. And uh, I was doing some wonderful reading, but uh, one of my favorite Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, had worked from 1 Corinthians 13 and others. But uh, he had reduced that down to the enduring ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity will be to communicate the love of God. And he draws that from prophecies shall cease and all these things shall cease, but love endures forever. And so he's saying the ministry of the Holy Spirit in eternity will be to communicate to the, to the one and the individuals in the one body of Christ for eternity, the infinite divine love of God. So, and so even the ministry here is in some ways, I believe, a manifestation. Of that, and that was very much encouraging to me as well this week. 
So what I want to do with you this morning is we'll read this passage and I want to kind of reflect on verses chapters 14, 15, and 16 and just see if I can somehow lay down what we learn of the Holy Spirit just from these verses. Is there more to him and to his ministry? Absolutely, yes. But is there less than this? No. It is, it is at least these things that John mentions here as Jesus has communicated. So in the context in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16, 1, 2, 1 through 4 actually, Jesus, and I've already shared in regards to this, in regards to their stumbling, he's, he's re- reminding them of all that he's spoken. That's going to be critical to their not stumbling when the hour comes that their persecution will begin. And then verse 5, Jesus picks up on that discourse, but he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, speaking of his departure now from this life, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. I'll stop my reading there, but let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, even as we speak of the Holy Spirit, I want to be sensitive and I want others in this room to be sensitive that anything effective for the kingdom and for the glory of Christ will be accomplished this morning in me and in those hearing by this same Holy Spirit. It is true, Father, that through this Holy Spirit we have this word in our hands. It is Uh, the manifestation of the Spirit's role in the Apostle's life and the recording of the truth. And so, Father, when we have this truth, it does not exclude us from our dependency upon your Spirit to understand these things. And so my prayer this morning, Father, is that you would grant the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our understanding, in our hearts and minds, that we might see you and see you in a more glorious way. So help us this morning. For your name's sake, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All the way back into chapter 14, and I'd just like to say uh, there is, and I've mentioned this several times, there is a direct apostolic application. I think in some cases Jesus is speaking directly uh, to what the apostles will experience, but there is an extension through that uh, even to the believers. So many of the promises or all of the promises given here, I think, relate to the believers as well. Uh, so, so use your own discernment in the moments. Uh, sometimes he's speaking directly, so there's an application there. Think about that, but also think about the extension of that and what it means into the believer's life. Uh, I get that from John 17 where Jesus even refers these blessings upon those who would believe through their words. So it is applicable to us as well. 
But going all the way back into chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, as I said, 26, and also chapter 15, verse 26, here's some things that we learn. In verse 16 of chapter 14, we learn that he is a person. Uh, that's, that's important because we speak of the Spirit sometimes as though it is an it or as though it is some force that is um, sent out by the Father to accomplish the Father's will. It's, some, it's something less than God, but, but some Spirit that is sent out. The Spirit is a person. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity holds fast that there are three distinct persons, one God. And the Spirit is no less God than the Son, and the, Son, and the Spirit is no less God than the Father. He is, in fact, God manifest himself as the Holy Spirit here, the distinct person of the Holy Spirit. Please remember that. Uh, I was reminded this morning, even as I was listening to our singing and, and participating in that, that when we are prompted or a word of God is brought to our minds in a crisis situation, it isn't just some ambiguous spirit or force bringing that to mind. There is a person calling to mind his own word to bring it to bear in our situation. It is God at work in us to bring to mind the very words that he has given to us. It's not an it. It's not a, it's not a, a whimsy or some impulse that can be evaluated and ignored if need be or taken whether or not we think it might be advantageous at the moment. It is the Word, it is God in the Holy Spirit bringing to us the very Word of God in any given situation. That's why I think it is always right to evaluate the spirits, whether they be of God, as John says in his epistles, but we do so by evaluating them according to the word. Is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, bringing to mind something in our minds and in our hearts? Is he illuminating something that can't be borne out in Scripture? If, it, if that's the case, then you have no warrant to accept that spirit as the Holy Spirit. But he is a person. He is God, and I think that's critical for us to remember. I, especially in our days today, we hear talk of the Spirit as, as some thing and force or energy floating around out there that we can work up in ourselves some ability to grasp it and, and, and uh, utilize it in ways which we feel best in our interest. That is a spirit, that is a spirit of this world. That is not the Holy Spirit. He is not ours to grasp, to utilize in ways that we believe to be advantageous to us. He is, in fact, God who grabs us and uses us in ways that are advantageous to His glory. It's a completely upside-down view the world seems to have of the Holy Spirit. You dare not treat a person, God, in that way. He is God. And we ought to be mindful of that and thoughtful about that. In verse 16 as well, that he is a person who has come down or given from the Father. In verse 16 he says there, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So he comes out from the Father. 
uh, from the Godhead. He, he does, he's not acting independently of the Father or of the Son, but he's acting in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Son. He says, I will ask the Father and he will send you the Helper. So the Helper comes under the authority or in the authority of the Father's command through the instrument of Christ's sacrifice to take up his dwelling in the hearts of believers. He is one with the Father. He is sent by the Father. We can pray for the Holy Spirit. We can pray for the feeling of the Holy Spirit. But if we experience either of these things, it is by the Father's sending Him. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, I would ask that you watch the progression of how Jesus says this. He will, I will ask the Father and He will send you. Later He says, the Father will send Him in my name. Later He says, the Father, the, later on, finally He says, I will send Him. And so there is a unity of the Godhead at work in the sending of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come compelled by the Father. He comes certainly of his own free will as God. But in the role of each person in redemption, the, the Spirit has a certain role and the Father sends the Spirit. He comes forth from the Father. He doesn't come from the world, by the way. There are those in our world today who would dream up their own ideas of what the Spirit is, describe to you what it does, and then to convince you to embrace it. And you open up yourselves in those moments to all sorts of demonic spirits that have manifestations in many ways. So this is a dangerous thing that we are dealing with here in regards to the spiritual aspect of it. He is the Spirit. He is, he is God. He is a person. He is not some force that the world can teach us how to grasp in some way and control according to our own desires. In verse 16 as well, he is given at the asking or at the request of the Son, Jesus says in verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So, so he's sent by the Father, but he's sent upon the request of the Son. I think that involves the Son's purchase of that, of that request, or the certainty of that request being acknowledged. There is something that has to take place for Jesus to have the grounds to, be, to appeal to the Father for the Spirit to come into the world and that be a righteous and legal, as it were, decision. So when Jesus says, I will ask of the Father, I think he's anticipating the basis for his asking. The Father cannot deny the Son's request to send the Spirit because of the merit of the Son's suffering. He has merited, as it were, the right in His role in redemption to, to ask the Father that He might send the Spirit. And the Father will indeed grant that upon the merit, of the, upon the basis of Christ's suffering, which is at hand at this point. And so He assures His disciples, I will ask the Father and He will send the Spirit the Holy Spirit to you. So he is a person. He is sent out or sent to us from the Father at the request of the Son. All three persons of the Godhead at work in that moment or in that act of redemption. So he is given at the asking of the Son. In verse 16 as well, he is spoken of by Jesus as a helper. Uh, we all have heard that. I remember when I was a younger person, I thought they said that the Holy Spirit was a parakeet. He's not a parakeet, he's a paraclete, and it simply means one who comes alongside in that way. So he's not a parakeet, he's a paraclete. He is one who comes alongside. This Holy Spirit who comes down to us when the Father, at the request of Jesus through the merit of Christ, is another helper. I thought that was interesting that Jesus said another one. 
I didn't know there were two paracletes. I didn't know there were two helpers. Obviously, Jesus seems to me to be suggesting that I, in my own capacity, in my very specific way, am your help now with you. But I will seek of the Father. I'm going to the cross. I will ask the Father and He will send to you another helper who will act in His specific capacity and according to His role in your redemption. I will appeal to the Father and He will send Him to you. I haven't researched this out, but I even thought as well that the Spirit was the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and Christ at that moment, <clears throat> one with one another in that ministry, because we know that the Spirit came down and lit upon Christ at his baptism as a dove, and as if there was a joining there. And so was Christ. Uh, it says that he was full of the Spirit without measure. So it may be that he's speaking there in terms of I'm going away, but the, the other helper is going to be here. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He says earlier in John, whatever the case may be, Jesus has spoken, speaks of the Holy Spirit as the helper. Some words uh, interpret it as the comforter. And Jesus says that that's what the role of ministry, the Holy Spirit will be. He will be a a helper uh, who comes alongside, who helps you. But in some sense, he's helping make application of the work of Christ into our life. I was thinking early this morning, the passage where it says all the promises of God in him, Christ, are yes. By what means? By the means of the Holy Spirit. Whatever is purchased by Christ and promised to Christ from the Father are brought to our account and applied into our lives by the Holy Spirit. So all the promises indeed of God in Christ are yes. That's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he is a helper. In verse 16 as well, I love this, and this is what set my mind to thinking in terms of the the eschatological ministry of the Holy Spirit, but he says of him that he will be with us forever. He says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he, there's the emphasis on the person, may be with you forever, forever. Now that's that's critical uh, because... We see in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come down and overwhelm and utilize prophets in very many ways and they would speak powerfully and through the power of the Spirit, but there was never a a forever dwelling of the Spirit with them. But he says, this Spirit whom I will ask of the Father and He will send to you as your helper, He's going to be with you forever. There is not this temporary coming upon you of the Spirit for some task in ministry. He will take up residence with you and be with you forever. And that's what got me thinking how long is forever eternity and then I said well what does he do in eternity I'm utterly dependent upon him now yes because I'm blind and I have a natural mind and these things are spiritually discerned and in every corner and every turn I am utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God But when I get into eternity and I see Jesus and I'm transformed in that moment to the image of Christ and all eternity is bliss, I'm thinking to myself, what's he doing then? He hasn't abandoned me. Jesus assures me he's with you then. You're not going to get to heaven and no longer have the comforter with you. You're no longer going to lose sight of him. In fact, you're going to have an expanded view of him because then he will be known in his rightful place as the spirit, as God. 
I was thinking about this. Is that individually in every believer's heart? But yet all believers have become one in Christ. So is it the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit radiating out into the oneness of the body of Christ whereby we are exposed to the divine love forever and ever even in that it is inf infinitely loving? Oh, what a future ahead of us. And the Holy Spirit is not going to give up in its ministry in our lives. He is going to continue to display for us at minimum the divine love of God for us all eternity, if not exposing the fuller glory of God throughout eternity. But He will not leave us. And I find great comfort in that because sometimes, sometimes our immediate experience of His presence is not there, particularly as they are about to face the persecutions coming upon them after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and His ascension. And so there may be moments in, that, in those persecutions that they don't personally experience Him, but they have a promise. He will be with you always. In those moments, were they, were they able to comprehend in those moments that even if I feel fear here, Peter... Or even if I feel fear here, the other disciples besides John, even if I feel fear here, I can be assured by the promises of Christ that the Spirit is going to always be with me. He's not going to leave me in those moments. Let me just say a point of application. I don't know what you're going through today, but I'm pretty sure it's something. And you may rate it on some scale of at the top or down low somewhere on the scale. But there is some challenge in your life today. And even if you don't feel the Spirit operating within you, Romans tells us that He is operating within you as a believer. And He's uttering up petitions to the Father uh, with the groanings of the Spirit that you can't even discern. Because He knows what you need in that moment. Why does He know it? Because He knows the Father's will. He knows the will of God and therefore He intercedes for you uh, according to that will. And, and because it is that, you can be assured that what the Holy Spirit is requesting for you in this crisis God will provide the father does not make known what is the need of the saint and then have the spirit dwelling in the saint to pray for the very thing he wants in the life of the saint and then not give it to him <laughs> it doesn't work that way it is God at work in us the spirit will be with you forever in verse 17 of chapter 14 John tells us that he is the spirit of truth describes him there that is this holy spirit whom the father will send he is the spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you that's where another place i i wonder is the spirit at work with christ in that moment the son because he's saying there the spirit of truth abides with you with the one abiding with him now is jesus and then he says he will be in you <laughs> So it seems to understand that the same spirit that's abiding with you now will one day take up residence in you. And so it's clear to me that this is the spirit of truth, of truth. Jesus has already said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit, he says here, identifies it as the spirit of truth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all manifesting themselves around this central reality. It is true. It is it, it is true, objectively true, according to the Godhead. And the Spirit, he says, later will lead you or guide you into all truth. So truth is central to the ministry of the Holy Spirit here. In fact, he is called here by Jesus the Spirit of truth. 
It can't be the spirit of half-truths or the spirit of error. It can't be the spirit of misinterpretations. It must be the spirit of truth. If we are acting inconsistently with what is revealed as the truth, it is not the spirit who is leading us. It is our dullness to the ministry of the spirit that has gotten us off hand. I've been talking, me and Brother Travis were talking as well, but there's something about the study of the scriptures in depth that should produce in us a humility that corresponds with that depth. It should never produce, I was sharing with Travis, if it produces in us an arrogance or a self-sufficiency, we have by the truth of Scripture moved away from what the Scriptures are teaching. It is an unspiritual discernment uh, through the intellectual mind and the powers of man uh, what the Word of God means to the to the absence of the glory of God. That's why we are dependent upon the Spirit for right understanding. Even if you get the facts right, you can miss the person that the facts point to. If you need an example, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were exactly that. I mean, they were experts in the facts. They had all the facts laid out. They knew the law. They were masters of the law. They were the seminary graduates of their days with the doctorates. They knew all that they needed to know informationally. And Jesus says, you search the Scriptures in thinking that in them you have eternal life. And they, the things you have mastered, are speaking of me, yet you reject me. Because they did not seek it by faith. And there was not the Holy Spirit illumination of those truths at work in them. So this is the spirit of truth. If you want to know truth apart from the Holy Spirit, then you're not likely to arrive at truth or at least at the destination that truth was to take you, namely into the presence of God. Notice he says in verse 17 as well that it cannot be received by the world. I think he means in that ultimately he means it by the unregenerate. Uh, this, this has a lot to do with what Christ is going for, uh, to the cross for. But I was thinking to myself, if the Holy Spirit is God, and God will not take up dwelling in a defiled temple, then there must be some ministry that makes the, makes the man fit to house God. I mean, it would be like going into the temple in those days and, and it would be filth and there would be, like they did later on, they would sacrifice a swine in the temple to defile the temple so that by doing so they would think to themselves, God would not dare come into such defilement. Therefore, we have essentially silenced God by, by sacrilege in the temple. And I wonder if that's not what he means in this passage as well when he says that the world cannot receive the Spirit. It's impossible because the world in that unregenerate state is not, is not available, is, cannot rightly house, as it were, the Holy Spirit. The world can't receive Him. And neither do they even want to receive Him. It does not receive Him because it does not see Him or know Him. But then he says to them, but you know Him. Because he abides with you and then will be in you. So the world cannot receive him. In verse 17 as well, he is with Christ. Uh, may be there in his ministry, but certainly will be in believers. He changes phrases there. He doesn't say, you know him because he's with you and he will be with you. He changes it. 
You know him because he's with you. That's me. I, I am God. The Holy Spirit is God. So in many ways, just as you see me, you see the Father in the same way as you're experiencing me, you're experiencing the Holy Spirit. Because Father, Son, and Spirit are God. So he is with you literally but something's about to happen that says he is going to, will be with you. He's not with you, in you now, but he will be. He will be. And that gets us into chapter 16. Don't you understand it's to your advantage that I go away? Because if I don't go away, he doesn't come to you. He's not going to be in you unless I go away. There's something in my going that releases his coming. So I'm with you now, yes. But he, when he comes, will be in you. He will teach you all things. You see that in chapter 14, verse 26. This Holy Spirit who is coming, he will teach you all things. Again, a specific application to the apostles and what would ultimately become the apostolic doctrine, the scriptures as we have them today. So it has an immediate application for them, but I think it has an expanded application to us as well. Through the scriptures, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, peculiar to those that not in the apostolic context there, he will be bringing us to understand the truth through the same means, the Word, the Word of God. But it is the same Spirit that brings that illumination. He will teach you all things and also bring to remembrance all that He had said. Uh, that's true. I'm not an apostle, and I don't think there are any apostles today. I, I, I object to the term people assign to themselves in some modern-day churches of calling themselves the apostles. I am not an apostle. That was a very specific office, I believe. I am certainly a disciple of Christ, and I am certainly commanded to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. But the apostles had a very specific calling. I think that's what Jesus was saying. Ultimately, he says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I have appointed you in a very special place. And the Holy Spirit will be working in you in a very special and unique way but it will expand over into the life of those who believe through the words that you are given. So I don't exclude the idea that for me, I'm it is necessary that the Holy Spirit guides me into all truth and also brings to mind all that Christ has said as well. I've got occasions this very week uh, to meet with folks and I'm already praying that, Lord, I don't know how to answer the arguments that I may hear. I don't know how to address the issues that may arise. I don't even really know what they are. But I know one thing, that there is a spirit abiding in me as a believer. And, and Lord, I yield myself as a vessel in that moment. Would you grant the words? Would you bring to remembrance what you have said that I may bring it to bear in that situation? And I am, I am dependent upon that. Because if it's, if it's based on sheer knowledge, I'm just going to point them to a website. I'm just going to give them a book. I mean, you want more knowledge? If you need more knowledge, here's a book. Here's a good website to go to. Just get all the knowledge you can get. It needs more than that. The Holy Spirit guides them, guides us into all truth and brings to remembrance all that He has said. Another one in chapter 15. I'm getting to 16, trust me. He will testify of Christ, verse 26 of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who's already spoken of, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. 
That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be testifying about Christ. He will be illuminating what it is about Christ. He will be teaching the words of Christ. He will be teaching the truth in regards to Christ. All the all the realities surrounding Christ and the ministry of Christ, the Holy Spirit will come and as His role in redemption, He will be communicating to, to you and the apostles and to you all that Christ is and has accomplished. He will be testifying about Christ. I said Wednesday night, I think, uh, some of the ideas that we hear these days about the ministry of the Holy Spirit seem to have very little to do with Jesus. In fact, often in, in so-called manifestations of the Spirit, you very rarely hear Christ's name mentioned at all. And if so, if at all, in some passing, non-relevant form. Well, that seems to be contradictory to Jesus' words because he says when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he's going to testify about me. He's not going to testify about all the things you can do by utilizing him, but about Christ. And this is, by the way, this is why I think it's so central that Jesus is saying this just before he goes to the cross. Because I believe that everything he's speaking of here that they can be assured of is going to be purchased on the cross. That's why I said of the hymn we just sang, Jesus paid it all. Yes, he did. But what did he purchase? What did he purchase? He purchased this. This doesn't happen if he doesn't go to the cross. So he's laying down these truths, understanding that the cross is necessary for the Holy Spirit to come back and to take up dwelling and to bring these truths back to mind for them, to equip them specifically for the writing of Scripture and for the inspiration of the Word and to, through them, equip us specifically for the illumination or the understanding and obedience to the very same Word. Everything centralizes around Jesus going to the cross. That's why he said earlier, my hour is come. What shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? This is why I came. You don't deliver me from it. I came into the world for this moment. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and testify of that Christ. I would, I would say this. If the spirit that you are involved with is exalting anything other than Christ you ought to question the nature of that spirit. Because if it's doing something other than that, it's doing what Jesus contradicting, it's doing the opposite of what Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will be doing in their lives. So he testifies of Christ. So finally we get to chapter 16. His coming to them and to us is contingent upon Christ completing his work. As I've already said, the cross, and I mean all of the work, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Uh, this is the progression I was talking about. Verse, chapter 14, verse 6, I will ask the Father. 14, 26, the Father will send him in my name. 15, 26, I will send him from the Father. And finally in 16, 7, I'll send him. <laughs> I'll send him. So there's an interesting progression in that as Jesus unfolds this truth. So in chapter 16, we get into this. His ministry is through them and in the world, 16, 8 through 11. Uh, this is where it's interesting. Some of that's repetitive. But he says, I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And this is critical. To you, with your sorrowful heart, 
Contemplating my absence in your mind is your disadvantage. We were strong and we were bold and we had access and communion with Jesus and Jesus is about to leave with us. That was our greatest advantage. Any state of being outside of that immediate presence of the bodily, uh, the bodily of Jesus Christ is for us a disadvantage. Jesus spins that around and says, I'm telling you, my absence is to your advantage. That tells me that something in regards to what's producing my absence is critical to you and will be to your advantage. You think it's your, your disadvantage now because your heart is sorrowful and you're worrying about where I'm going. And I'm telling you that where I'm going is necessary, critical to your being able to do all the things I've just described to you, namely not stumbling or not falling into some trap. It is to your advantage that I go away. And he says it very clearly. Why is it to our advantage if the disciples might have asked? He says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But then he turns it around into positive. But if I go, here it is, I will send him to you. And this is why I think it has something about the preparation of the vessels. There is no apostle who in and of himself was clean, was cleansed to the point to which God himself in the Holy Spirit could take up dwelling within that body. If I don't go do something about that issue, he's not coming to you. He may act in the world as God. He may come upon people and prophesy, but he's not coming to take up dwelling in you unless I go to him because there has to be a preparation of some sorts for you to house the living God in the person of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to him through the cross to accomplish this work of cleansing and redemption and, and, and setting you in the right place so that the Holy Spirit of God may come back to you and take up residence in you and be with you forever. I mean, that's the essence of what the cross has done. Yes, there is forgiveness of sin. Yes, there is justification and propitiation and, there are, and even sanctification and all the mercy for all of these things purchased by the cross. But primarily all these things are to the end that having identified with Christ, we are a new creation and therefore having been opened up now to the presence of the Spirit of God taking up dwelling within us. Otherwise, God would have had manifest himself in the flesh and in, in a Jesus-like person for every believer for all time because he would never be able to take up residence in us, but he would always have to be with us and guiding us from the outside. Here, God is coming to dwell within. That is the most remarkable, profound truth, uh, one of the most certainly that I can even try to comprehend. How a God who is limitless whom the universe itself cannot contain, can confine himself, as it were, in the person of the Holy Spirit within the hearts of a believer. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. So when he comes to do that, he goes on to say, and when he comes, this Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. He gives this in summary at first, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he gives a description. What do you mean concerning sin? How is he going to convict the world concerning sin? And he gives kind of the reason there, because they do not believe in me. And of righteousness, verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been cast or has been judged. 
So when this Holy Spirit comes, which I, through my cross, am going to make available and make possible for you to have the indwelling ministry, when He comes here, when He comes into the world, He's going to do three things here. He's going to convict one thing, but He's going to convict on three areas in regards to the world's sinfulness, in regards to righteousness or the world's unrighteousness, and in regards to the, to the source of that unrighteousness, which ultimately is the devil, and of His overthrow in that very act upon the cross that He was about to, to do. Now, if you read around, there's a lot of various interpretations of what's happening here. Some believe it's when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to take over the ministry of individual conviction of sin and, and so forth. And there's a pattern, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and all those things. And certainly we understand and believe all over the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit brings about conviction of sin. We don't believe that we could come to Christ unless one is born of the Spirit. He cannot see the kingdom or enter the kingdom. So I'm not disputing that at all. But there seems to be something greater happening here or more, more profound in some ways. Because he doesn't say when he comes into the world he will convict the elect of sin and righteousness and judgment. He says there is something about the presence of the Holy Spirit that will, that will render guilty as charged to the world. In regarding sin, why? What is, it, what is the Holy Spirit here revealing in regards to the sin of the world? Jesus says it. They don't believe in me. That is, that is proof positive of the sinfulness of the world. In John 3, 18, what does he say? This is judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. So I think the Holy Spirit's presence is indicative of the guilt of the world because the light was in the world and they loved darkness so much so that they drove the, the light to the cross and silenced Him and as it were, put out His light. Is there any worldwide conviction more devastating than that reality? He came into His own and His own received Him not. And so the Holy Spirit's presence in the world generally is an indictment in regards to the sinfulness of the world. All the world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Secondly, I believe the Holy Spirit is indicative here. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers and in the world in general through believers and through the proclamation of the Word is that, that conviction in regards to righteousness. It is, a, it is a display of the righteousness of Christ. And in that display, it displays the unrighteousness of the world. Not only you killed Him. And under the, under the understanding of your unbelief, it is evident that you are all guilty as charged. The accusation stands. The evidence is obvious. And it is also obvious that you are guilty in that way because you did not behold the righteousness of Christ. Guess what? You killed him, but he was risen from the dead. We know that the wages of sin is death. But if this man has risen up from the dead, he either paid the wages or he had no sin. I think the latter is true. He had no sin individually, personally, but he took upon himself our sins and thereby was made able to die and having paid the debt, rose from the dead, convicting the world of righteousness. This is righteousness, not yours. Never, never yours. And the Holy Spirit in the world and in the life of believers, the apostles first and then believers after them who proclaim the word are essentially bringing evidence into the courtroom whereby God Almighty views the evidence and declares the world convicted. 
The world is a convict. The truth has been proclaimed and the Christ's sacrifice has been carried out in the world and we were blinded to it in our wickedness. And the jury is in, as it were. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have declared and brought judgment in the coming of the Holy Spirit of the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. And finally, I think the convicting here is in regards to judgment because Jesus says, why? Because the, judge, the ruler of this world has been judged. Here's, here's the indictment upon humanity is that you still embrace your sin even though through this, through this son who you did not believe going to the cross and rising from the dead, he has overthrown the God of this world. He is no longer master in this world, but yet you still yield to him as though he does. That's a conviction. That's an indictment against humanity. The Holy Spirit must, in fact, overcome that reluctance in our spirit and in our flesh, or we will deny that to the very end of our days. The Holy Spirit, I think, indicated here by Christ's own words, it's more than just the Holy Spirit operating in the hearts of believers to bring conviction and ultimately salvation. Yes, He certainly is doing that in the ones God has chosen in the elect. But listen, there is a testimony of the Spirit's presence as it's manifested in the life of the church down through the ages that indicts the world. It is an indictment of the world. It, it, is, it is illuminates the sinfulness of this world and the guilt of humanity in that they have not believed in the Son of God and they have trusted in their own righteousness and they have yielded their lives to the sway of the devil and the God and the ruler of this world whom he has overthrown by the cross. I think that's what he means. It's not all that he means, but it's at least part of what he means in this passage. So he says to them on the hills of this in verse 12, and I'll close with a few thoughts, but I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, what's he going to do? He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. Remember, Jesus said that of himself. I'm not speaking on my own initiative. What the Father has said to me, that's what I'm speaking. So here, the Son and now the Spirit are bringing to us the Word of, of the Father, the Word of God in their own specific roles in redemption. So will the Spirit. He will speak and he will disclose to you what has come. So there's a prophetic element. In fact, uh, that's exactly what John the Apostle is doing in Revelation. So, so the Holy Spirit is going to speak to them specifically in a very peculiar way to apostolic reality. He's going to bring their word to him. Even the prophetic word, they're going to record those things. But the same things are true, I think, by extension to who he who have believed through their word. The Bible you have in your hand is the testimony or the witness of those truths. Uh, I thought about that. It struck me that it's interesting that the Bible says you are to be my what? Witnesses in the world. And so in the, in the indictment of the world, the believer with the word of God in his hand and the spirit of God in his heart goes out into the world and proclaims the truth. And so in doing so, we are witnesses <laughs> It is though God in His accusations of the world calls to the stand, as it were, eyewitnesses through the apostles and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they proclaim the Word in the world and, and the word, world through the Word demonstrates their own guilt and condemnation. They are indicted by the very proclamation of the Word but mainly by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus says in verse 14, I'll close, we could go on with this, but he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All that is pertaining to Christ, uh, he will take that as it were and bring it to you. That's why I don't think he says more to them because they don't, they don't understand the fullness of the cross and what's happening at the cross at that moment. I have much more to say to you, but you can't bear it now because it's completely outside of the realm. But when he comes back, he's going to guide you into all truth and he's going to take those things of mine, that which is purchased, that which is merited by me, and he's going he's to take all the things pertaining to Christ and bring them to bear in your life. You're going to understand what the cross was all about. And we do that through the writings of the apostles as well. He's going to bring those things to your mind. Jesus qualifies in verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I say that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. I think the essence of that is the working of the Godhead in salvation. All these truths will be brought to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this morning, are you dependent upon that spirit? I am. I absolutely am, and you are. You are for the slightest little things. I mean, if you, if you set out this week to, to, to exercise some, some attribute indicated in Scripture as ought to be of a Christian, do you realize you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit for that to be produced in your life in any meaningful and effective way this week? Oh, you can fake it. You can fake it, but it's not to the glory of God. It's to the exaltation of your own pridefulness. And it's such a subtlety. It's such a subtlety. I mean, Paul says to them, uh, says to, to, the, to the believers in the local church, I'm not recalling the exact letter, but he says, are you so vain as having begun by the Spirit? Are you so foolish as to think now you're being justified by works? You started out by the Spirit. You were led by the Spirit, illuminated by the Spirit. And somewhere you got off track and decided that having been illuminated by the Spirit, oh, I got this, I'll take over from here. Are you now justified by that? No. You're neither justified nor sanctified by your own strength. And that's the reality for everybody in this room today. Everybody. Uh, you are dependent upon the Spirit for even the knowledge of what Christ did, much less the application of that reality and the merits of His suffering into your own individual life by His calling you out of darkness and into light. Uh, I think that's a minimum of what John is saying here this morning. So stand with me. Thank you for your patience. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place not just temporarily, but ever mindful of our dependence upon the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, bringing us understanding and clarity and illumination to the truths of your word. And Lord, I pray that we might be faithful witnesses. We are not the condemner or the accuser of the brethren. We are we are only to be called to be faithful, to bring the truth of the word to bear in the world. And Lord Jesus has already told his disciples in this passage that they'll be hated by the world for that very thing. And so will we as we bring that truth as well. But Lord, help us to be found obedient by the strength the Holy Spirit provides. And Lord, I pray that that same Holy Spirit will move in our hearts this morning as we take a few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.